The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand it. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> You know where you are right now? You're in Deep Tracks country. Welcome to my world. Another special bonus episode in which I will be interviewing an amazing individual. Uh, We are still in the midst of my break between season one and season two in which I am frantically (laughs) writing and gathering uh, research and all kinds of wonderful things to to be ready to put out some more super awesome content like you're hearing right now as I come up with descriptive words like super and awesome because apparently I'm a 12-year-old. So, all right. um, Today's episode, I interviewed John Lucchetti, who is the founder and CEO of Green Room Strategies Um, He's had a very interesting, very diverse career within music, um, most of it on the business side of music and uh, working with kind of different talent, talent management. And uh, but he's 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 got some great stories to tell, a lot of wisdom to share. He's um, worked with uh, well, he currently works with Alan Parsons or I should say works for Alan Parsons. Um, with, for, who cares? He's like, yeah, I feel like talking to him, I was just, you know, it's like six degrees from Kevin Bacon. You know, I was just like one degree from Alan Parsons, two degrees from Pink Floyd, if you really think about it. And um, he's also worked with the Neurocom, which uh, some of you may or may not know is is the, um, they're, they, they do a lot of work with Jack Johnson and some of his, I believe it's some of his uh, charity or, or his environmental outreach or programs, uh, initiatives. Uh, so John has just had a, a, a whole wealth of experiences um, that are not only within the music industry, but, but adjacent to it, and has worked with a lot of different artists at many different levels of their career. And uh, like I said, he just brings this um, wealth of experience and wisdom to the table. So it, it was a fantastic conversation. We got into not only things that are kind of the more um, nitty gritty, you know, with the business side of things, but then also just talked about uh, just overall ideas related to the arts and um, where is the industry headed nowadays or, or what is it what is it like trying to make it within music nowadays and even um, just some life lessons, you know, in, uh, when, when life throws you curveballs, what do you do? How do you, how do you deal with that? And how do you still do what you're passionate about, even if you have to renegotiate how you do it? So sit back, relax. It's a long interview. It's, um, I believe it's close to an hour. So this is a much longer episode than, than most of my other episodes, but, uh, I think it's great material. So hopefully you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed uh, being part of it. All right. Um, welcome, everyone. I'm super excited to um, be able to spend some time with John Lucchetti from Green Room Strategy today in the Deep Tracks virtual studio with me, which is um, it's going to be an amazing interview, I think. But yeah, so um, I, I had the privilege of meeting John through, through Darren Smith and uh, We've been conversing over email the past couple of weeks, and um, it's kind of cool to see that our our lives intersect in a few sort of different ways, but also a lot of very similar interests. And uh, I'm actually very excited to pick your brain because I just feel like there's a lot of things you've done in your life that um, not only are of interest to me, but but also like part of me is like, man, like that would have been cool to be part of that or to experience mm-hmm. that. Or so this is gonna be really great. Um. So yeah, how about you share a little bit about your background, uh, who you are, where you hail from, and yeah, yeah. Again, John Lucchetti, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm currently based in Linden, Utah, which is just about 30 miles south of Salt Lake City. I grew up in Salt Lake City as part of the, you know, underground music scene and skateboard scene. I was kind of a hardcore skater from seventh grade up till college, which when I started playing music, I 
crash and hurt my hands and so then it was like oh, okay. I had to pick one and uh, <laughs> it took over but um yeah I've been obsessed with music ever since I was little and um went to college for jazz guitar um after a hand injury I ended up on the business side and I worked a lot of different sales and marketing jobs I wasn't working in a you know Salt Lake's a great music scene but it's not a major music hub and the dream was to be around the best musicians possible so um, so I, you know, I had to get creative and found ways to uh, just create value and build relationships and um, worked a lot of sales jobs and marketing jobs and tech jobs in the meantime. But ultimately, all that experience really helped me to come back. And now I'm currently running a company called Green Room Strategy, which is basically um, I I'm a trusted advisor and strategic, you know, consultant for musicians and bands and music related projects. So at the core what I do is I help um, I help them work more strategically instead of doing random acts of improvement as my former business partner used to say. <laughs> and what that looks like is, you know, a new platform will pop up. Let's say, you know, it used to be MySpace and then that went away and then there was Facebook and then Instagram and now it's TikTok and all that keeps changing and it's really frustrating for artists to keep on top of that. Yeah. And what happens is you end up chasing bright shiny objects like oh here's an opportunity here's an opportunity, and you're just doing random acts of improvement like all right well let's try this let's try this, and that's where frustration kicks in because it's hard to measure like what's actually working, and what's not right. or you do everything uh, you know get the marketing dialed in the music's great but you're not registering all your royalties properties to, properly. So you're not really sustainable because you're not, you know, you're leaving money on the table. So I look at artists, businesses holistically, and then see like, how do we do the marketing, which a lot of it is marketing focused because musicians need to get their music out there and get it heard. But then also on the business side, how they protect their intellectual property, how do they register for everything properly and so, yeah, it's the core. It's just being a trusted advisor. They're the captains of the ship. I'm just helping them navigate. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like, how do you, things are so different now than, um, you know, I don't know, when we were kids, right? Like it was, you know, it used to be you'd, and I, I kind of talked about this with Darren in my interview with him as well, but I mean, you, you know, you'd find a, just, some kind of connection to maybe get uh, a demo out there or something that hopefully gets you some kind of record deal that hopefully eventually gets you a bigger record deal. Um, and it was, things are much more, in some ways things, it seems like they're much more democratized now, Yeah, but it's also, it's just changing so rapidly. So, I mean, how, how do you feel like you can corner the market on, on how to, Kind of get your music out there if it feels like it's almost like you're like just chasing like a cat chasing the little laser pointer you know what i mean like you're yeah just which is to... why it's easy to get caught up in that <laughs> and the random backs of improvement and chasing bright shiny objects right. yeah um, yeah so what's like the constant you can hold on to like what's the consistent thing yeah i think that's where you have to build out prototypes of like who are the su successful artists who or already have your audience so for example if you're going to open up for a band that their their fans would naturally be inclined to like you. Who are those artists? And like you know, and you can map that out and find out like where are they active online? What do those fans care about? And do that across you know a spectrum of of you know eight to ten artists, and then you can branch out to more artists from there based on the data and actual listening behaviors and reverse engineer what are the clubs, what are the music you know outlets and the cover of those kinds of bands and getting really honed in and specific so that again it's coming back to working strategically and saying where are my ideal fans just like any normal business would do they have to know who their core um, you know customer looks like so that they know yeah. where to focus and so it's doing a lot of that but the challenge is and like you said it it used to be that it was just a few channels and everybody tuned into that. And if you were lucky and you had a connection, maybe you'd get on the radio or you could get, you know, label would help or get on MTV and things like that. But that was like for a very, you know, small subset of artists. And meanwhile, there's all this great art out there. So it is much more democratized. You don't have as many gatekeepers 
uh, we have bedroom producers who are creating, you know, Billie Eilish and people like that making hits out of their bedroom. Right. But um, it's a lot, there's a lot more noise to contend with. There's a lot more competition. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of tracks uploaded to Spotify all the time. So you're just competing with a lot more. And that's why you have to build a brand. And a brand is really just a shortcut, like a mental shortcut for like what consistent experience or what emotional experience am I going to get when I interact with this band or this artist each oh, time? Yeah. And okay. artists, they often say, well, I'm not a brand, you know, because it's corporate, but it really is just like, what is that consistent experience I'm going to get so that I can tell my friends about that and we can yeah. feel part of that community because we identify with that. And so it's really just yeah. kind of honing in on that, building a brand, finding the prototypes, and then kind of drilling down and then the tactics will just, you know, emerge from that. You made me think of um, just the other day, I was listening to a, a podcast, um, Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. They were talking about authenticity, like if that idea still exists in music today, particularly, you know, in, in rock music. But um, but it is kind of an interesting thought, like because it used to be, again, it was a kind of this thing like, you know, if you you think about when like Modest Mouse, for example, like yeah. when they kind of like took that next step, right. And, um, signed on a major label. And then, and, and most of the time that kind of divides fans, right. Those are the ones that like stick with them. Like, Oh yeah, I just want, I just love their music. I don't care. And then there's the ones who are like, Oh, they sold out, you know? Um, and so what these guys are talking about in the podcast or in rock and roll bedtime stories is, is they feel like that's not a thing anymore. That authenticity, this idea of authenticity is kind of phased out, or at least that's the way they're putting it. But I don't know, do you do you kind of, uh, it sounds like, do you feel like you still kind of run into that? Do artists still well, feel concerned yeah, about that? Yeah, I mean, like, it's, I think as you grow, there's always going to be the the art, the fans that say, I knew them first because it's like, it's cool or whatever. And then you're selling out. But like, and, and it used to be, yeah, if they did like a Ford commercial or something, oh, well, they're selling out. But now, you know, sponsorships and endorsements is a big part of it because you're not really making nearly as much from streaming. And you have to get creative and find other ways. So the goal there is to find the brands that are aligned with your core values. And then it's not selling out. It's, it's you know, if you have a company that's against your core values, then yeah, it is. Because then it's just yeah. a paycheck and, and you're just selling your fans' attention. But if it's something that you care about and, and there's just that alignment, then it can be a great partnership. Yeah. So, so I don't think that, you know, and then there's also this this notion of purity like and um, you know artistic, yeah, authenticity. And and I think it, you know, growing up, it used to be like, oh, you're into rock and heavy metal, or you're into new wave, and there was no in between. <laughs> yeah. And that's gone way out the window. It's like people yeah. go to a Depeche Mode concert, and then they'll go to a Tim McGraw concert, and then they'll go to a Modest Mouse concert, and it's all just good music, which I think is great, but. Growing yeah. up, it we were kind of segmented more in these core channels. So, oh, uh, definitely. I mean, I remember, I remember me, my friends, and I just, um, you know, we were all into, uh, like, for example, the punk music I was into. I was, yeah. I liked, I liked Black Flag. I liked Dead Kennedys. Uh, in the '90s, I liked Rancid and No Effects. You know. And then I remember Green Day came out and I was like, uh, it, was, it was a little resistant because I was like, man, yeah. this is a little too poppy, you know, and we'd get in these debates. Are they punk? Or are they pop? And then by the time Blink-182 came out, I was like, I'm done. I'm over. You know, I was like, yeah. I can't handle this. This is ridiculous. You know, it was just very like, for me, it was just like, you can't muddy the, the, yeah. the you know, the integrity of the art, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and now, but like you said, like now I look at um, like my kids uh, Spotify playlist, for example, and they are it's like somebody just kind of rolled dice, you know, I mean, it's just like, and it's cool though. I mean, like my daughter, she knows the lyrics to songs that, that I grew up with that I don't even know the lyrics to, you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of funny. Yeah. Like she just, she, there's no limitations, but it's neat. You get like, you're starting to get fresh sounds with this, this fusion, you know, as people are absorbing more and um, different things. And so it is exciting. Um, but when you say um, building a brand, do you, I mean, is it for most people is that like, social media is that kind of the uh just kind of like the look and the feel and the voice of the you know is it like you know if you look at iconic bands like the clash and just kind of they have a very distinct look and feel and vibe and 
again, you know what you're going to get. And Metallica is like that too. They've got the logo and everything fits in that heavy metal brand. And so you just know what you're going to get with Metallica. And so part of that is, you know, it's always up to the artist to define what that looks like, but they do that by what are the emotions and what are the experiences I want fans to consistently get when they interact with me. And then you can codify that with colors and fonts and, um, because again, the Starbucks logo doesn't change. The Metallica logo doesn't change. Like right. um, it helps people recognize and then say, yeah, that's, you know, that's that experience and and tell other people to go check that out. So the Blink-182 example, like they're not changing it up to look like the Google logo. It's like, you know, that would be very off-brand. So, <laughs> right, yeah. so it's really just kind of codifying that and then making sure that that's consistent so that, the people you're attracting, you know, the fans on the, in this audience look like fans on stage and are the, band, you know, people on stage and you're really kind of building a community at that point, but it starts with just consciously defining that. And then also a core part of that is defining the narrative that you want journalists and fans and other people to share and music execs, because what often happens is artists just quickly write a bio, they put it up there. And then let's say, there's some media coverage and there's not much to go off of. So what are they going to do? They're going to search around online and, and hopefully interpret properly what your vision is. But a lot of times that doesn't happen because they're just grabbing things or grab the wrong image. So having, you know, really great photos that represent, you know, a visual representation of that brand, that's really important because, and having those on the website so that if they do grab that, those are the images that you want to get amplified within the market, not just yeah. some random one. Um, so, and again, it's not knocking the journalists. They're really busy. They've got a lot of a lot going on and what else are they going to find? Uh, but yeah, yeah, really important for the artist to find the narrative that they want other people to share. And then the colors and the, you know, the logos and fonts and all those things and how you would show up on a festival poster, all that emanates from, that narrative. Yeah, I was, I thought, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned um, part of the process is, is opening for other acts that kind of feel like they have a similar, um, you know, crowd or similar fan base. Yeah. And so, I mean, do you, is like, is live music still kind of a, a factor? Like, does it really, um, yeah, is it still kind of factor into how people are trying to kind of build this brand? Like, I feel yeah, like everything is yeah, just so it, much, just... you know, streaming, right? But yeah, and go ahead. <laughs> oh well, yeah, that but that's that's more of a mental exercise, but it's basically that because if you were trying to sell tickets to a show, you don't put a band that's significantly different on the bill because the crowd wouldn't like that. So you want to have bands that don't sound exactly alike, but the opener yeah. should really get the crowd energized for the headliner. And so, just from that perspective, if you could say, all right, well if I were to open up for eight different bands, who are those that their fans would really love what I'm doing um, and that they have a big enough audience that I can kind of look at that data online and reverse engineer that and then make, you know, mold that towards what I'm trying to do. Because then if you have these prototypes, you can create a roadmap and say, well, here's the kinds of venues that book those places. Here's the kinds of media that, that cover bands like mine and sounds like mine. Here's the... Um, you know, the whole galaxy of connections that you can map out, who are the the record labels that, that, you know, sign those kinds of bands, who are the artist management companies that work with those kind of bands, and who are the specific people that work at those places, so you can kind of map out all these connections, because at the end of the day, it's a relationship-driven business, but it's really easy to just be scattered and say, well, I just want people that like music to hear it, it's like, cool, well, like, who and where, and you can spend a lot of money and burn through a lot of time and headache trying right. to just be, you know, the shotgun approach versus getting really <laughs> focused on who those fans are. And then over time, you can look at the data and say like, oh, wow, I'm really getting streamed a lot in in Des Moines, Iowa, for example. Um, I Maybe I should go do a show there or I've got a lot of fans in Atlanta and you can look at the data and dictate uh, that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it helps you make smarter decisions but in the beginning if you don't have that then you're just looking at prototypes and then following that path until you get more data 
Yeah, it seems like at, at different times in, um, I guess you could say the music industry in general, um, it just seems like at, at one time live or, or recordings were a way to try and bring attention to live shows. And then other times live shows were a way to bring attention to the recordings or the albums. And, and now I don't know if there's, I mean, is there even still that mindset or is it more so like, it sounds like it's just, you're just trying to use them to inform each other. Right. Like you said, like you're more strategically, like people are streaming in Des Moines, Iowa, I'm going to do a show there. Yeah. Or, you know, it's not, I mean, do artists, uh, do you find that there's kind of a, um, a preference with the artists you work with about I, I did even still think in terms of like, we, we want to be more of a live band versus we want to be more of a studio band. Is that any kind of factor? Yeah. There? I mean, there's, there are those considerations, but then you figure out like, again, you kind of look at prototypes and you say, well, if we're a live band then we need to get a booking agent and the booking agent's going to work off of, you know, they're working off commissions basically. And so there's an opportunity cost for them to work with your band versus somebody else. And can you, you know, sell enough tickets and put enough butts and seats to make their job worthwhile to work with you versus somebody else. So then you yeah. can kind of map that out and do the activities that would help you build that core audience and sell out you know, two, 300 tickets in your local market consistently and then spread out regionally. And then they have something to go off of and that makes it a lot easier for them to, to buy tickets. Um, if you, you know, I have friends that write music for production libraries or they're session musicians. Um, so that's a, it's a different path that you're optimizing for. So it's really like, yeah, looking at that and saying, well, if I'm going to be a touring artist and make money off shows and merch, but also of course, streaming and sync licensing and things like that, there's, there's lots of different ways to slice that up, but it's really who are you at the core and what are you trying to optimize for? Um, yeah. You know, are you writing music for, you know, film and television of friends that just do that and don't tour? Um, but that's a very, you know, specific path and it's much different. So yeah. it's, it's important to, you know, ex explore all the options and then find like, where are you most energized and enthusiastic and want to spend your time? Because no matter where, it's going to be a grind, but at least it's a focused one. Well, and I mean, you know, we live in the era where you have, you know, Trent Reznor writing music for Pixar movies. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it's, yeah. so it's a very different kind of realm uh, where I think maybe artists in general, just not even thinking maybe quite so. I mean, like you say, you do have to build a brand, but it, maybe there's more flexibility and just, you're just trying to create music period. You know what I mean? You're, you're not trying to narrow down into like, this is exactly what I'm doing, or this is the kind of music I'm making, or this is where I'm, you know, but you're, you are the brand, right? And people just enjoy what you put out there and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's that, but I do think that it's important to, you know, find, again, map out that kind of galaxy of connections for the kind of music that you do so that the right people can find you because again, like a music supervisor that's writing or they're, you know, they're working on a TV show. You're not going to submit like Celtic music to a show that's, you know, about like, you know, like a movie like New Jack city or something. It's just, there's right. there'd be a disconnect. And so it's really understanding who you are, what kind of music, you know, excites you and that, that you want to put out in the world and then finding the contacts and like, you know, for that Celtic music, maybe Peter Gabriel's Real World, Real, Real World Records and the WOMAD festivals is a much stronger fit. So it's just, that's the nice part about the democratization is, is that we have connections to more, you know, niche genres than ever before. And we can find those people and we can look on LinkedIn and, and find those executives and build those relationships way easier than we ever could in the past so that's part of like not just wasting a bunch of time on a lot of random things it's really getting focused on who you are and then kind of sticking with that for a year or two and testing it and saying like does this work does this fit is this resonating with the audience because at the end of the day it's also a business um otherwise you could just write music in your bedroom for fun and you know put it out there and nobody's going to hear it if you want to do this for a living then you need to be marketable and you need to find the markets that 
or booking or hiring for the kinds of projects that you do. Well, and so, is that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, and so, yeah, I, again, if you're a very niche focused artist, that's fine. You're going to find your community. You might not be selling out stadiums, but you can make a good middle-class living if you get enough fans that want to buy and support and really love what you do. Well, it, it, you had me thinking about, well, not only what New Jack City would sound like with Celtic music, but also about like with the, you know, I think you mentioned what your emails, um, how generally speaking artists, they, they reach a certain point, they just know they need to go to a physical location, right? Nashville, yeah. New York. And and that was part of like, right, the brainchild for Santa Barbara Records is, yep. is trying to bring attention to lo- you know, artists there. And I mean, so it, I don't does it, does it still matter like where you live? You know, if you want to. Uh, yeah, yes, but not as much. So um, again, proximity, the, it does make a big difference um, if you're in a place where like like a Los Angeles where you can go out to lunch with people and you bump into each other at shows and there's this community and get invited to parties and different things like that. And then it could because it's a, such a relationship driven business. Um, Zoom, it's amazing that we can do that. and like this right now and we're not in i'm not in san diego you're not in utah but if we were you know in in those places and got to run into each other at shows there's going to be a stronger connection and top of mind like we just remember to refer each other for business or i could pull you into a gig you know those kind of things so being in those bigger markets is helpful but they're also really expensive they're highly competitive you know, you want to go be a songwriter in Nashville. That's like saying you want to be an actor in LA. Yeah. Um, so you better be on your A game and just be really focused on what you're there to accomplish because there's people that are just going to outwork you or there's freaks of nature that just can <laughs> shred. But if you yeah. can build the right relationships, you can create opportunities for yourself. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so you, the other thing I'm, I'm, I've been trying to, well, okay, let's talk about Alan Parsons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been kind of holding off on that, you know, just thinking like, okay, I want to kind of save that for for the end. And I, but I, I am curious how, um, with everything you've been sharing, so Alan Parsons is, actually, I should maybe make this note. So for those of you listening who don't know who Alan Parsons is, um, he actually, do you want to share who Alan Parsons is? I, maybe you'd be a better yeah, person. Yeah, I mean, to, Alan's, to bio on you know, him. just an iconic artist, uh, producer, engineer, and he's just one of those iconic triple threats that are beloved worldwide. He, you know, worked at Abbey Road Studios in the early days and worked on Beatles, you know, assistant engineer to Jeff Emmerich. He was, you know, worked on Abbey Road and Let It Be. He was on the rooftop for the Beatles' last show. Uh, There's, he went on to you know, produce Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. I produced Al Stewart, you know, whole stream of hits and then with the alan parsons project had a you know his own hits with eye in the sky and sirius which was the the um, official theme song of the chicago bulls at the peak of michael jordan's right so he's just had like a just you know a string of just hit after hit after hit but but who he is at the core is he's really just focused all about the music you know the musicianship and the craftsmanship and he doesn't get caught up in like all the the BS. He's really just focused on great music, and so yeah. I think that's why he's been able to have the longevity and um, you know the respect that he has in the industry. Yeah, and I, I mean, you'll know I did wear my Pink Floyd Dark Side yeah. of the Moon T-shirt. Although I, I was debating about it, I thought, you know, like he's done a lot more than just that one thing, you know. But but I couldn't help myself. I, I just thought I own this. T-shirt. Yeah, it's I one of the greatest it. albums of all time. It is. Yeah, it really it, is. I love it. Well, and I um. Uh, oh yeah. So my, I guess my question with him is, is he's, so like, you know, as you point out, he's been doing this a very long time and he brought you on to, if I understand correctly, kind of help with sort of the, is it the marketing, right? Yeah. Or, just or, digital you know, marketing, optimizing the web presence and just fine tuning things. Um, you know, when you have a career that long, there's a lot, it's just like a big moving ship, but yeah, uh, I was able to kind of go in and optimize some of the things online. And, and then I started bringing him different opportunities and trying to solve problems and be helpful. And so eventually that 
turned into joining his management team as a co-manager, which I did for about a year and a half. And then I stepped down from that, moved to you back to Utah to be closer to family, but stay in touch with them and still have some projects in the works. But right. um, well, and that and that was kind of what I was curious about is is how do you come into um did it feel like it was kind of a dynamic environment? You're able to really retool things or did it feel like they've been doing this for a while and people were kind of locked into how things had always been done? Yeah, they're open to, you know, optimizations is, um, you know, but I, it's up to me to have the domain knowledge to point that out saying, you know, obviously they're doing almost everything right because it's, you know, his career has just been iconic for 50 years, yeah. but things change over time. Platforms change over time. Maybe you set up this account and then these links might change or the photos would change or there's just always tech is it's ever changing. So you have to be on top of that and, and optimize things. So I was able to go in and just fine tune to some things yeah. and then also bring in some other projects. But yeah. I would say, you know, you don't start start out by joining his management team. I had to prove myself <laughs> and I had to, you know, work with a lot of other artists before that to get the domain knowledge to then be ready for when that opportunity arose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, what do you, I mean, in working with him, um, I'm trying to remember what, how you said you first met him. Was that a, um, it was at a party, uh, you know, it, so what took me to Santa Barbara, California was, I um I joined a company called Oniracom and they're the they've been the agency of record for Jack Johnson, Santa Barbara Bowl, you know, worked with most of the major labels, festivals and events, and they would have client appreciation parties and other events and have bands playing in the parking lot, things like that. And Alan came to one of those. He lives in Santa Barbara. So again, that's where the proximity of like if I wasn't there, it, the relationship would and the opportunities yeah. to follow up would have been as strong. So that's where we met and then we stayed in touch. And then O'Neillcom built the website for his uh his personal studio Personics. And then um and then you know one thing led to another and I started helping with his marketing. Actually we um the college that I teach at a community college down here and we use his for our intro to music technology class we actually use his um, well, I, it was a DVD series. I mean, now it's probably uh, ASSR, but yeah, yeah. Was that, yeah. was that, did Oniricom help with that at all? Or is that a totally No, that, that's a separate thing, but that's a, uh, Alan and his business partner, Julian Colbeck. Oh, okay. And, um, that's Alan Parsons art and sciences, uh, sound recording. It's a yeah. program and yeah, they do work with a lot of different college and university programs around the world. Um, and then Al, occasionally Alan will have live courses you know at his studio in santa barbara at personics and about 20 people will come in and and get a more hands-on experience with you know the audio jedi master himself right. uh, so i've been able to sit on, on some of those and they're, they're magic it's it's a really great program and i think a few of those i'm trying to remember because i i used to teach that class but i i think i remember some of those are on youtube as well like clips of mm -hmm. them or just some of the sessions they've got some some video if you go to like he has a channel i think right um or that yeah and that if series you google that right sorry yeah. go ahead oh no yeah yeah that's what i'm about to say yeah if you just look it up you can find it and yeah, look up the art alan parsons art and science of sound recording it's assr but i looked that up and then they've got a whole online course that you can take anywhere um yeah. and they have dvds and books and things like that but but the course is now online yeah. And, and I mean, that really is, I mean, I don't mean to go too far off topic, but I, th that's a whole part of, um, it's great that people have more and more access to software like Logic Pro, which is what I use, or, you know, Pro Tools or just different things. Um, I think the downside is, is they kind of feel like, okay, I've got these, it comes with all these plugins and I've got this gear mm -hmm. and the software and they're like, okay, I, I now I know how to record. And there's like this whole other aspect, this this art to it of just knowing how to just EQ itself is like an entire yeah. course. You know what I mean? Like there's just like all these little things to it that I think, um, anyway, I, encourage, I can't encourage people enough to, if you're interested in, if you do any recording at all, just to go there and, and uh, 
know. Yeah, I well, that's why I think it's called the art and science because there are scientific things that that he's studied over the years and trial and error working in all these iconic studio environments. And then there's also an art to it that like, maybe I want to tweak it in these different ways, but there's always going to be these core fundamentals to getting a much better sound and higher fidelity. And um, yeah. why wouldn't you want to learn from somebody that's, you know, that experience? It's, it's really incredible that we now have access. Again, that's, part of the excitement of the democratization is not only just, you know, on the distribution and marketing side, and now I can upload a video to YouTube and build fans all around the world, but I can also have access to all these incredible minds and I can collaborate with them and I can study from people like Alan. I can have, you know, top session players in Nashville play songs and send them to me. And so the collaboration opportunities are, are just incredible. And so I think it's, yeah really exciting time to be an artist oh yeah yeah definitely i um i mean you you went with him to tel aviv right did, did you go on that no 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 i just helped on just you know the, the you know the structuring the deal with the record label and in those kind of things from you know the management perspective but yeah uh but yeah he he has a you know, two live dvds that just came out and and it's also on spotify you can listen to it but there's the one note symphony live in Tel Aviv with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra. It's yeah. really special. Uh, it's a must listen for any Alan Parsons fan. And then also the never ending show live in Utrecht, uh, which was a, again, live recording in, in Utrecht. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's great to of course, go back and listen to all these, um, you know, all the studio albums, but it's the Alan Parsons live projects really special as well. And with the Israel Philharmonic, it's, it's a must watch much listen yeah yeah and you pick up any nuggets of wisdom from from alan any cool stories for alan parsons <laughs> um i mean the nuggets are just kind of like watching how he operates that he really does he, he's just all about the music and he's very focused on that and he um you know he's a musical genius but like he's not full of himself he's just confident and focused on what he wants to get done and um and he's also pays attention to the minute details of contracts. Like there's a lot of artists that say, well, I just want to focus on the music and leave all that business stuff. And that's how, you know, we have so many artists get screwed up in yeah. finding bad deals and things like that. So he really is the captain of the ship and he's very focused on all aspects of that from, again, a holistic standpoint. Yeah. Uh, so seeing that, seeing how he takes care of his band, seeing, you know, just um how he operates it was really inspiring and you know an honor to be part of that in just you know a small way well yeah because I mean, he i mean there was he was invited back to work on the wall by mercury yeah. but did he he turned that down that was when he was starting yeah. the project right and yeah. which that seems like that's that's a leap of faith you know to have this opportunity and then to you know, all right, I'm going to try this other thing. And, but it does, like you said, it shows that he has this dedication to the music. He has this idea of what he wants to do. And yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's and where he's interested lies. Yeah. The, yeah. You could, he could have you kept working with them, but he knew that he wanted to try different things and experiment with different things. And, you know, the Alan Parsons project never toured in the beginning because it was meant to be, you know, more of kind of a cinematic type experience and all about the music. Yeah. And, um, and just really cool art that went along with that. And um, in the early days, they didn't tour. Um, so it's, you know, it's just really interesting to see. On one hand, you know, if you're wearing the producer hat, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to just keep producing these great bands, but he's also an artist. He's also an engineer. So he had music that he wanted to get out into the world. And, and so I think, you know, that's part of why I respect it so much is, he could he could do things to make a lot more money and chase you know bigger projects, but he's just focused on making what he wants to make, and he yeah, does yeah. It at the highest level. So for you personally, like how do you find? Because I mean, you know, in working with different artists who are you're helping them fulfill their sort of creative dream. I mean, like, so how do you find creative fulfillment in that? Because I mean, I think you're yeah, it feels like you're probably a creative person on some level, right? So what is it? 
Yeah, uh, yeah. that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of creativity in business because it's a very challenging industry and it changes all the time and things that work for one artist don't work for the next. And so, um, you know, and again, I wanted to be a performing musician. I went to school for jazz guitar um, after a hand injury, I ended up on the business side of things because I just wanted to work around the best musicians I possibly could. So part of that is, you know, when I worked for Oniracom, the creative agency, I remember walking around UCSB, UC Santa Barbara, where where Jack, you know, attended school and also the yeah. founder of Oniracom. And, you know, this was probably about five years ago. And there was you know, a group of students sitting around with a boom box, which is kind of funny to think about, uh, but <laughs> they had a little one and, and they were playing Jack Johnson. And this was from an album that came out, you know, 20 years ago, but it was still relevant. And it was, and it just kind of hit me. It was like the marketing work that we're doing is helping people around the world have these great experiences. And music is like an anchor to the best and you know, and hardest moments of our lives, but it gets us through all these different things. And so, you know, it's amazing for Jack to write this great music, but it needs to get out in the world and we're helping other people to hear that and then have those great connections. So I find a lot of fulfillment on the marketing side and in helping artists, because I know that that's going to go out and have a ripple effect and help all these other people have incredible experiences or get through these challenging times or have these moments and remember these songs. So yeah. that really sticks out to me. Well, and your role is kind of the, I think the unsung hero of, of um, you know, just behind like every artist, there's there's gonna be like someone who's just like helping them make that happen, right? Cause they're- It's a team effort. Yeah, yeah. It, there's just too much for any one artist to do. And now you throw in social media and you throw in the mm -hmm. technology and all the content creation and things that are required to build an audience. And frankly, you know, it's not fair, but but the industry does kind of look at the numbers because we go back to opportunity cost and risk management. And it's just really expensive to break an artist. So the industry's kind of looking at like, all right, well, can you sell tickets? Can you, do you have a very engaged audience online that's going to listen to the album? And if you right. do, then I can throw fuel on the fire and invest over here versus and unless it's just so compelling that you know that you can get to that point, but that's more rare. So the industry just tends to look at the numbers as a shortcut to, you know, is this artist bankable? Um, because it will be an investment in that. And so you have to, you know, think through those things. And if you're writing songs and performing and booking your shows and creating content and trying to build all that, it's just, it's really overwhelming and and it's frustrating for artists. So that's why they need to build a team around them. And maybe in the beginning, it's just your friends and that team is small. And then you kind of work up through the ranks together, but but it's not like, it is a team sport is I yeah. guess is what I'm getting at. And I think the importance is finding a values aligned team who, who says, yeah, we're gonna go take over the world because we believe in these types of things and this is what we wanna, our art to represent, regardless of the genre, you know, it's just what are those core values and what do you want that music to, to do in the world? And then having a team that's more aligned around that than, hey, we're just going to go make a lot of money together. Because if you're chasing the fame, if you're chasing formulaic hits, that's not where the great art comes yeah. from. You know, they had no idea that, you know, this is the 50th anniversary this month of the Dark Side of the Moon. They had no idea that we'd be talking about it 50 years later. They were just set out to make the best possible music and they succeeded. So if yeah. you're trying to replicate that and make the next dark side, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But you can make a different one in a different genre, different sounds, different people by just focusing on what's in your heart. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, I, I think the it's easy to get caught up in. I, I know for me personally, what I always found intimidating, especially when I was in college and then kind of early days, I, my, my degrees are in music composition. Oh, cool. And so it just, I remember it was always very intimidating um, being around other, you know, musicians and composers who I just felt like were so like skill wise beyond me. Right. Like, I think you kind of shared a similar sentiment, right. When you were yeah. studying jazz guitar, right. And yeah. you, 
you know, like see these people who've just been playing since the womb, you know, and and so, but I, I always go back to in my in my head, I kind of go back to um who's it, Eric Larson who no Gary Larson who used to draw the far side cartoons. Oh yeah, right? I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you think about it, like Gary Larson, he's he's not a great artist, right? <laughs> like you compare like his drawings yeah. to, you know, but but it was just its own thing. And like you know, everyone like who doesn't love far side cartoons, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and that's just because he wasn't trying to be like better or you know, he's just being unique, he's being himself. And I, I feel like, you know, we have to get out of this idea of of competing or who's better or who's you know, and just like what's my unique vision or voice that I can share with the world. Um, which again, with the sort of how things are today, you don't there there's you can reach your audience out there, right? Like you can be as niche as maybe yeah. as you want because you're able to kind of get it out there and, and find those people and, and create this sort of virtual, you know, community, um, which is kind of cool, you know, that. Yeah. And the simplicity often is, is like, what's, <clears throat> what works best where, you know, it's easy for shredders to come out of Berkeley and they're just playing as many notes as possible and it's fireworks. It's impressive, but it's not, is it actually moving you versus like somebody like, <clears throat> excuse me, us, when you hear him play like it just moves you to your core yeah and yes he can shred he can do all these things but every note is thoughtful every note is tasteful or you listen to mazzy star you know and how many years later that just it's just so moving but it's so simple it's not or bands yeah. like low you know that just had a huge impact but yeah. but it's just very like slow and but they just focused on their thing and did it the best way they could so that's a great example, think actually. That, yeah, for artists, it's really important that again, just to do their thing, and then also think about where does that thing fit in the commercial space if they want to make that, you know, do it for a living. Yeah. Well, and then this actually kind of brings me to sort of the last thing I wanted to maybe just talk with you about was the Amplify project. Is that? Oh yeah. Because um, I think for one thing that just it looks very cool. Um, and I also kind of wonder how much of it is like some of this stuff we've been talking about where you're helping artists kind of fulfill a vision, but like it, but you're also like, it's a lot of it's just empowerment, right? You're, you're, well, actually I'll let you just yeah. share what the Amplified project is and then, or. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it's, so I definitely believe in, in being part of the community, being involved in the community. And so, you know, I was previously the, the uh, president of the Rotary Club of Montecito and um, served on different boards, but but Girls Rock Santa Barbara, which is now the the um, Amplify Arts Project, it's a program for for girls and gender expansive youth to basically have a space where they can go in and you know learn and grow, and they develop leadership skills and they form bands and and have these experiences at a young age, and especially young girls, you know, confidence and things like that, especially in the area of social media, it's, it's, it's really challenging. And then girls, and they, they only make up a very small percentage of women, you know, in the music industry. But of course, like, they're just as talented and they can bring so much to the table, so much great art, so much great wisdom. But, but the industry is just so male-centric, you know, the top acts, the top producers, the top. So, we as a society are really missing out if we're not empowering this gen- next generation to really embrace that and make it more equitable. So Amplify Arts Project does, they have these camps and they have these different programs and and the attendees can go in and, you know, again, at a young age where we're all trying to figure out lives and form bands and have that interaction and learn how to lead teams and learn how to um, communicate and experiment and try things and be goofy or just try serious things, but in a way that's very supportive. And when you get that, it's like, then you're not afraid to try things and create new art and new music because you know that people have your back. They're not going to laugh at you. They're going to say, oh, well, maybe this will, you know, it's very constructive and the proof is in the pudding and they've just helped thousands and thousands of people through this program over the years and so that's why I felt that I would you know I would be happy to join the board and help out in whatever yeah on their board of directors but it's called the Amplifier Arts Project uh, but it was, it was Girls Rock Santa Barbara 
And um, and the girls rock programs around the country are, are great like that too. It's just, I think, you know, uh, there's the, uh, she is the music program. There's oh, yeah. a lot of these different programs popping up, but it's, I think it's one thing to say, well, that's unfair. This it's skewed. It's not equitable, but cool. What are we doing about it collectively? And so that's why I wanted to be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, and it looks very, um, I love the idea of, because people do get hung up on fair versus equitable, you know, and, yeah. and those are two different things. Right. And, and when you're trying to um, bring attention and opportunity to a demographic that has traditionally been underappreciated or, or at least underutilized. Yeah. Um, like that's where you're, I think you're really just trying to make full use of the resources that we have as a society, you know, um, which actually is, you know, being this being a, a rock history podcast, yeah. uh, I, I, I do at some point plan on, on tackling the, 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 complicated and sometimes troubling history of just gender within rock music you know mm -hmm. especially the the idea of this this male figure holding this guitar like a phallic symbol right and then these women fawning around him right that that symbolism especially you know when we get into the 80s with you know hair bands yeah um so it's giving me like some yeah you know I, i'm i'm both looking forward to tackling it but at the same time um you know it's it's something that needs to be like heard and understood that there there's not we're not done with these issues we haven't like solved these problems we're still no we're not, still not dealing at all with racism we're still dealing with sexism we're still you know all this stuff you know yeah i mean you think how hard you know artists from billy holiday to joan jett to you know yeah you name it they've they've had to fight an uphill battle and they weren't taken as serious and if you look at you know producers and engineers or you look at modern festivals and the makeup, like it's mostly dudes. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, and and some of it is, is not nefarious on the part of just right. people in the industry. It's just like, it's that proximity and that network effect. And if you're hanging out with people and you're in bands with guys, then that just becomes reinforced and they bring in more guys. But that's not going to change unless we consciously do that. And we do that by getting women in more positions of power where they're working the festivals where they're producing these hit records where they're in the room and then they're going to just use their skills and you know create opportunities and they'll bring more women along but yeah it's not going to happen by accident because a lot of women were shut out on purpose so i think that's why it's important just we can't change the world overnight but but i think if we sleep think that and then help bring up and you know book more female acts or female fronted acts those kind of things that helps yeah well especially the the perspective that that they're gonna bring yeah because um, yeah, we all have our blind spots right that are informed by our biases or just by our life experience and so the more you're able to invite into the conversation people who have these other perspectives these other experiences that Fewer blind spots, right? Or you're, you're like, yeah. your eyes are open to more things. And then we as a richer world have a richer, you know, music palette to listen to and and more experiences to more art, more everything. It's, you know, it, we all benefit by this. Yeah, yeah. All right. So very last thing. Uh, yeah. What are there certain artists that just kind of inspire you or you just enjoy that you feel like... Um, just kind of feed your soul that you yeah i mean about. i think the band fish is at the top of that list I, oh wow you know, um i'm very eclectic i love all kinds of different music and all different genres you know i'm currently working with william lee golden from the oak ridge boys nice. uh, he's got a family band called william lee golden and the goldens and you know an icon that's 84 years old and still touring so <laughs> um he just has the music in him and he's still going strong so that's really inspiring but for me, Fish, um, you know, it's for most people, it's love them or hate them, but I think they're very misunderstood. But at the core, it's they're virtuoso musicians that can shred and play and do funk and rock and jazz, and they can play all the genres with, and hang with the best yeah. of them. But they blend it all together in a way that you don't get the sing-along songs without the goofy ones, or you don't get the like face-melting rock without the funky dance grooves. And they blend it in a way that's all on their 
own and they're doing it on their own terms. And because of that, no two shows are alike. And every if they play the same song, it's going to be different every single time, similar to how The Grateful Dead was. Because of that, and they're so focused on fueling the fans and making it fun and interesting. And they like to mess with the fans and change it up. So anything that you try and get, you know, uh, predict what they're going to be doing, they'll just throw a wrench in the works just to mess with the fans. But that keeps it fun. And it becomes like people tracking baseball stats, people track how many shows they've gone to, what songs they played. And there's a whole community all around that. But it becomes really fun because then they reward fans with bust outs or, oh, they haven't played the song in like, you know, 300 shows. And and so then if you know that when they play that or they tease that, it's a really exciting moment. And then everybody's, you know, so they're always like just playing with this energy with the crowd and interacting. And it's a very kind of give and take thing. But um, yeah. and the the output that they've had, the high level of how many shows, how many songs they were the first. I mean, not the first, but like. You know, a lot of the modern festival industry is built around what they've done. We wouldn't have Bonnaroo without them. Yeah, they they played on a you know Florida swamp and had seventy thousand people go out to a festival just to see them. I mean, no, but without big top ten video hits, yeah, and, and twenty minute jam songs, it's like they're just them, and you either love it or hate it. But for me, it's just. I can't get enough of it. And yeah. uh, so that's one that's really inspiring. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's just, you know, a lot of bands can learn from them and learn what they do, whether they, you know, the music moves them or not. It's kind of like sushi. Some people like it, some people don't. <laughs> but for the people that like it, we really like it. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I remember when Jerry Garcia died, and that for a while I felt like Fish had. They kind of got short shrift because they were like, okay, well, they're the replacement band. They're like, they're going to take over yeah. for the Grateful Dead, you know, but they're really their own thing, you know. But it's I, what I, I, I appreciate you bringing them up because what's cool about them is they're, it's music for people who just love music. It's people who appreciate music for the sake of the music. It's not like this background thing while you're yeah. doing laundry or, which I mean, that's great too, but, but it's when you want to just kind of sit and nothing else is going on and you're just kind of absorbing sounds, you know, that are just uh, played with in different ways and um, definitely need a long attention span for it. As well. Yeah, yeah. It's a peak, you know, build and release and peak emotional states. And we see that in EDM where DJs just build yeah, up right? yeah. the crowd with frenzy or at a Metallica show and it's just build it up and then everybody goes nuts or, you know, hip hop. We see that across all genres, but for them, because it's so improvisatory, you just don't know what's going to happen. So you have to pay attention. And then and then they have all these surprises within that. And it's so nuanced and it changes all the time. So yeah. they just keep rewarding you over and over. So you can be a casual listener. You can throw on some of like the more sing-along friendly songs and enjoy that and have that for what it is. But if you go deep, you get really rewarded for that too. And um and they've just focused on that for in the past 30 years. And so I don't think anybody can replicate what they do. There's other really great jam bands out there um, that do similar kinds of things based on what they've learned, but but nobody can outfish fish. Like they're just their own thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think any artist could model us them on building a community and building, doing things on their own level and you know not trying to just chase radio hits yeah you could still have a very profitable community and business by just doing the thing that you love but it's all about feeding those fans yeah 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 that's cool nice well appreciate your time is there any other is there like a sign up or call to action you want to leave with anyone here uh, or? yeah i'd say you know if you want to check out what i do look at greenroomstrategy.com and then um also look at the Amplify Arts Project online. Um, yeah, and if anybody has questions, I'm pretty available, so they can just reach out to me through my website. But I appreciate you having on me on here and what you're doing, and you know, yeah. documenting music history. So um, yeah, yeah. it was great to meet a friend of Darren's. So right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it and it's always fun to just talk music, and then just and even just hear what different people are doing within music. You know, because I think. 
there's just so many of us out there who just love it and want to be a part of it in some way. And, and there are ways to engage with it directly. Like you have your guitar and your background. I have my yeah. drum set in my background. Like there's that element to it, but then there's just other ways where you just like, I just want to be a part of this somehow, you know? Yeah. So, anyway, well, I guess I would say one last thing is, you know, there's a lot of people that dream about doing this for a living, whether it's on the artist side or it's on the business side. Either way, it's a hard path. It's challenging. There's a lot of obstacles. There's way too many people that want to do that. Um, but like for me, I can't turn it off. It's just like I just think about music all the time. And so I just had to go all in. And I think that's the common denominator. We see the people that are successful in the industry is you know, they will not be denied. They're going to, it may take 10 years, it may take 20 years, but they're going right. down this path. But if I can do it, honestly, then anybody else can do it. Um, you just have to, again, on the business side, find those prototypes, find the things that excite, energize you and the kinds of projects you want to work on. And there's lots of different ways to work in the music industry. It doesn't have to be working at a label or doing different things. I worked for a marketing agency for six years and it was one of the best launch pads I could ever have because I got to see a wide cross-section of the music industry meet all these different people and work with brands and work with nonprofits and get insights into community building across you know instead of just the the traditional echo chamber so so I, I tell your listeners like there are ways to do it and that's going to be part of your creativity is figuring out well if you're not in a major hub, how can you network with people? I did a podcast so that I could do that. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you solve problems for other people and just get known for doing that? Because everybody wants the sexy jobs. And you're, the reality is you're not lounging with rock stars all day. Most of my days are email and meetings and phone calls <laughs> yeah. and stuff, but it's in the service of the art. And then because of that, I get to do a lot of really fun and interesting things but at the core it's solving problems over and over and I think if you get good at that and known for that then you'll make yourself invaluable and people will want to work with you but if you just think like I'm so talented and if people just recognize that or anoint me or pull me out from the audience because I'm so good and why is this not happening right. it's just not going to happen that's not reality nobody's coming to rescue you <laughs> You have to get creative. You have to create opportunities because there's just too many people that want to be doing it. Um, yeah. And I think, again, find those prototypes and do the same things I said for artists and figure out what your lane is and be open to lots of different opportunities. For me, I just knew I had to be around the best musicians possible and work around music. And then I had no, I, I could never have predicted I would be doing what I'm doing now. But I just knew the general yeah. path. And I think if I thought, well, I just have to work at a record label or I have to do this and then labels start folding or recording studios start folding because, you know, budgets are shrinking and, you know, bedroom producers are taking away a lot of different business, you know, then I would have been in trouble. But, you know, it's it's that adaptability and, yeah. you know, that's that I think you have to have. Yeah. And actually, I was I was actually just about to bring that up. Yeah, because you're your life story is a great example of that. Like you, you have this one plan in mind, you injure your hand. So then you, you saw the passion there, right? So then how can I, um, you know, re-engage in some way and, and change course, but still do what I want to do and, and still find fulfillment from that. And, and um, which for me as well, like I'm, I have not ended up in my life, in my musical life where I thought I would, you know? Yeah. But again, you still find like you still find the fulfillment in what you do and, and you realize that you're just even if it's not what you imagined yourself doing, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you're still doing something you love to do, which not not everyone can say that, you know. Yeah. A lot of people spend a long time at a job they they hate or just they're kind of just living their life. Um Right, without really pursuing yeah. any passions or having that experience. So, but I also think that um, it's really important to point out, you know, that the famous quote, I think it was Mark Twain, said, Comparison is the thief of joy. Okay. And so it's really, really easy to get caught up in that and say, Oh, well, they're doing million dollar deals or they're doing this or they're hanging out with these things. And what are, and then you just feel bad about yourself, even though you're doing cool things or you're doing meaningful work. And so for me, it really comes down to, am I working with great people that I enjoy working with every day? Am I making a difference? Am I working hard 
you know, doing projects that I enjoy, well, I might not ever have a Grammy or work on that or, you know, it doesn't matter for, you know, and if it does, that's great. But like, that's not why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think people need to just be aware of that, that, that like, it's so easy to get frustrated and say, well, I'm, I work hard, I'm talented, I should be doing this. And then every, there's just always going to be somebody bigger and more successful. And if you compare yourself up, then, then it's frustrating and that's not a fun place to be. But if you say like, I'm really grateful that I get to do this for a living and that I get to meet all these great people and be surrounded with that. That's a win. And then of course you got to make a living, but, but kind of, kind of looking it down and counting your blessings and, and being grateful for it, I think is really key. Otherwise you drive yourself crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That is words of wisdom. That's a good, it's a good place to, to yep. end this, this conversation. So thank you. I really appreciate Thanks, your time. Dad. Yeah. This was great conversation. And um, yeah, hopefully we are, our paths will connect again sometime. Maybe sometime yeah, around sure Utah, we, you, me and Darren can grab lunch or something. Yeah, next time in <laughs> San Diego, that'd be great. Right, yeah, yeah, cool. All right, man, yeah, thanks, appreciate Dad. it. All right, that was my interview with the inimitable John Lucchetti. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed um, speaking it, saying it, being part of it, uh, being a member of that conversation. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at Deep Tracks Podcast. Also, visit my website, deeptrackspodcast.com. There you can sign up for my newsletter and access the show notes and all kinds of other fun things. You can also set it as your homepage. And every day when you get onto the internet, you will see Deep Tracks there staring back at you lovingly. Okay, you know what? That just makes it sound creepy when I put it that way. Anyway, until next time, keep it deep.